Welcome to the Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast. This podcast series was developed from a live PCE conference focused on gastrointestinal and genitourinary cancers, including gastric cancer, colorectal cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, bladder cancer, and prostate cancer. In each episode, you will hear the latest evidence and expert recommendations for the care of patients with a specified malignancy. In this podcast series, each of these topics will be discussed in two podcast episodes covering didactic presentation of the available evidence, relevant case discussions to illustrate clinical implementation strategies, and the audience Q&A session. Be sure to listen to the two podcast episodes for each topic in sequential order, as they may include examination of continuing case studies with patients progressing through different stages of their care. To claim your credit, please visit pce.is forward slash G-I-G-U. I'm Taryn Sims. I'm a nurse practitioner at the University of Virginia Department of Urology in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our topic is advanced urothelial cancer, applying new therapeutic options. Our first speaker will be Dr. Malar, an associate professor of medicine at the Division of Hematology Oncology at NYU Langone Health, New York. Here are our learning objectives for this session. We'll identify the appropriate use of clinical practice and novel emerging therapies for advanced urothelial cancer. We'll describe toxicities of novel therapies for advanced UC. We'll implement strategies for the management of toxicities associated with novel therapies for UC. I start basically any conversation about bladder cancer by you know, giving a little sense of overview in terms of demographics, a little bit of epidemiology. So it's an extraordinarily common malignancy of the urinary system. It's, it's actually the sixth most common cancer and the 10th leading cause of cancer death in the United States. It's a common malignancy of older individuals and age distribution there based on new cases by age, really clustered in patients around the age of 70. So 65 to 75 is the majority of the patients who are diagnosed. And depending on what series you look at, roughly median age of 73, I think is a reasonable median that you can kind of peg around. And three quarters of patients are above the age of 65. And certainly the incidence of mortality is certainly higher in men than women. The primary reason for this is that this is a carcinogen-induced malignancy, the most common risk factor being smoking, and then obviously, and then also patients who are in the chemical and dye industry, those exposed to chronic solvents like aromatic amines and, and dyes and so forth are the patients who are at risk for the development of this disease. In chronic carcinogen exposure, many patients will ask, well, how does it develop? It's because it concentrates in the urine after circulating throughout the bloodstream. When the urine sits and dwells inside the bladder, chronic exposure to the urinary lining inside the bladder is ultimately what leads to the development of bladder cancer. The inside lining of the bladder is called the urothelium. That's the primary lining. It was previously called the transitional cell epithelium. So before what used to be called transitional cell cancer and urothelial cancer, these terms are interchangeable. Although you know, urothelial cancer is the more preferred term, the more modern term. And it arises from cells that exist in that first layer uh, that is in the lining of the bladder. Now, there within that layer, there are also basal cells and luminal cells that can have actually differential genomic expressions. But for the purposes of our talk uh, in, the, you know, in this conversation tonight, just say, you know, it's really that urothelial lining that becomes cancerous. Now, the cancer can develop and, you know, once it develops in that lining, usually as a consequence of chronic carcinogen exposure, it can grow uh, either along the lining. We call that carcinoma in situ. It can grow as kind of these papillary fronds or these tumors that grow into the empty space of the bladder. We call those papillary or TA tumors. And then they can also grow into invasive tumors that grow into the first layer below the urothelial lining called the lamina propria, 
And collectively, CIS, TA, and T1 are collectively called non-muscle invasive bladder cancers. We treat them quite differently than the other stages, which are T2 or greater, which are muscle invasive tumors, primarily because of the risk of subsequent metastatic spread. Once the tumor has access to the muscle layer, which is the detrusor muscle of the bladder, the dense network of capillaries and venules in that area really give access to the rest of the body. And patients who develop muscle invasive disease have upwards of 50% risk of development of metastatic disease. And therefore, it's a more aggressive tumor. And the treatment, therefore, you know, in terms of aggressiveness also escalates. You know, localized treatment with TURBT and intravesical therapies is the mainstay of treatment for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. It really ratchets up once patients have muscle invasive disease to include either radical cystectomy or chemoradiation, primarily because of this subsequent risk of dissemination into metastatic disease. And that's even with, you know, definitive local therapy. I kind of touched on this previously, but uh, here are some of the primary risk factors for the development of bladder cancer. Majority are smokers, you know, and this cumulative risk over time. Pelvic radiation, you know, for other malignancies can also raise the risk for bladder cancer, but most often we see uh, sarcomas develop as a consequence of um, pelvic radiation, and these can often develop 10 to 15 years after pelvic radiation. So a different type of histology within that context of bladder cancer. Men favored three to one over, uh, over women. A certain familial history such as HNPCC or Lynch syndrome. So patients with that genetic history can be at risk. Other behavioral occupational risks that can be associated with it, including other medications, the TZDs, which are a class of diabetes medications, have been linked to the development of bladder cancer and also cyclophosphamide. It's a metabolite called acrolin can actually accumulate within the urinary system and can also lead to the development of bladder cancer as well. What are the principal signs and symptoms of bladder cancer? They're focused on, on the bladder. So painless gross hematuria, far and away the most common symptom. And this is the entry point into the healthcare system for patients with bladder cancer. It's either the blood that patients can see, or it's the blood that the primary care physician uh, detects on their routine urinalysis, let's say during a annual physical or so forth. But then the other symptoms are also concerning, such as irritative symptoms, frequent urination, difficulty urinating. All of these symptoms also can mimic UTIs. So men and women who come to the primary care physician or others with recurrent urinary tract infections that are then treated and then they get better, then they get worse and back and forth again, ultimately then are diagnosed with bladder cancer. This may actually be a reason why women actually have a slightly you know, delayed onset, delay in diagnosis because women are more likely to develop urinary tract infections um, in, in older age as compared to men. Uh, men who develop urinary UTIs are going to be probably earlier to get a cystoscopy, for instance, than women might. And so this may actually contribute to a delay in diagnosis in women as compared to men. Patients ask, well, you know, why is it that you know UTIs are linked to bladder cancer? It's actually not; it's the other way around. Once patients develop bladder tumors, the urinary micro microbiome gets completely disrupted, and you know, pathogenic bacteria accumulate within the bladder and lead to U UTIs. So basically, what happens is that you keep treating the urinary tract infection because the superinfection occurs, but the, that bladder tumor is obviously still there, and ultimately, it needs to be diagnosed. Metastatic bladder cancer. Depends on where it goes, right? So depends, you know, weight loss, fatigue, unexplained symptoms that can affect other parts of the body, such as bone pain, essentially the symptoms of advanced cancer. So let me hand it off to Taryn to discuss the next case, Ashan, our 68-year-old gentleman. He presents with a UC metastatic to lymph nodes. He smoked cigarettes for 20 plus years and he quit about 10 years ago, age 58. His medical history is important for mild hypertension for which he takes amlodipine, no family history of cancer. His physical exam was pretty benign, five foot inches, 153 pounds, heart rate and blood pressure are normal, blood pressure is a little bit high. Relevant uh, lab results included creatinine of 0.8 and LFTs within normal limits 
and his molecular profiling shows no actionable mutations. So what is the most important thing to determine before planning first-line treatment for Sean? The most important thing to know about a patient with newly diagnosed advanced urothelial cancer is to know whether the patient is eligible for cisplatin-containing chemotherapy. That's the most critical kind of decision point you need to make. And it's because cisplatin-based chemotherapy is the first treatment of choice. It's associated with survival benefit and even some cures in some patients and largely driven by the sites of disease. We, you know, long-term data, you know, long-term studies in patients uh, treated on, on the original MVAC studies going back to the late 1980s, and even the more modern studies involving GC versus MVAC have demonstrated that patients with, you know, node-only disease, often limited to the, you know, retroperitoneum in the pelvis, can actually be cured with cisplatin-based chemotherapy. And so really, it's important to understand whether patients are first eligible for cisplatin-containing chemotherapy. But what we also know is that there's a somewhat poor tolerance, and, and many of our patients don't have a long-term durable response to chemotherapy. And upwards of 50% of our patients are ineligible for cisplatin-containing chemotherapy. The primary factors that drive this, age is listed there, but age is kind of a surrogate for a lot of other things, right? So there's an age-related decline in kidney function. So sometimes those two things are paired together. And also with age, sometimes there's a decline in performance status. So really, it's performance status and kidney function, kidney dysfunction. Those are the two primary objective factors that drive uh, cisplatin ineligibility. Other relative factors that we include also in our regulatory definitions include neuropathy and heart failure. Heart failure is often listed because patients with you know poor ejection fractions aren't really able to handle the you know the large volume requirements, uh, IV fluid requirements that are required uh, for co-administration along with cisplatinum. And so patients you know are at risk for you know heart failure exacerbations and so forth to be able to safely receive cisplatin-based chemotherapy. Oh yeah, and not to mention patients with heart failure also you know can also have concomitant uh, kidney dysfunction. So a lot a lot of times you know these medical comorbidities really you know they they migrate together. So certainly alternative treatment options must be offered for patients who are not eligible for cisplatin-containing chemotherapy. So very important, again, takeaway, determine first if the patient is eligible for cisplatin chemotherapy in the first-line setting. That's the most important thing that you do. All right, so what are alternative first-line options? So let's say you made the designation, you know, I've got an older individual, maybe they're in their late 70s, maybe they're early 80s, and they have bad cardiovascular disease, maybe they have, you know, bad kidney function and so on and so forth. What are the other options to consider? Well, carboplatin-based therapy, which is often considered the kinder, gentler platinum, can often be considered. Data has shown even randomized trials that, that suggest lower response rates, although modern trials suggest that maybe that differential in response rate difference is probably not all as large as we used to think it was. Shorter duration of response, that's always going to be the case with uh, chemotherapy in general, or lower overall survival. And there still is substantial toxicity. So what we trade off with cisplatinum, which cisplatinum is associated with nephrotoxicity, neurotoxicity, and ototoxicity, we trade off with platinum, carboplatinum and gemcitabine, often which is bone marrow toxicity. That's kind of the trade-off. So immunotherapy you know, was developed. Uh, Single-arm studies, Keno 52 and Invigor 210 cohort 1, it led to accelerated approval for both Pembro and atezolizumab, respectively. First, broader labels in 2017. Let's fast forward to uh, April of 2021. And then more recently, we have, I think, really now codified where these uh, both agents sit for Pembro. It's for patients that are not eligible for any platinum-containing chemotherapy. So it's very important to understand. So those patients who, again, are just poor protoplasm that you, you're really worried about the safety of any platinum, whether it's carbo or cis, that, then it's a reasonable choice for that patient. And then it's also available as a second-line option after progression on platinum-based chemotherapy. So that, that where it's, there's a clear survival benefit. And for atezolizumab, it's still available as a single agent in cis-ineligible patients who have high pd one expression, and also for those patients who are not eligible for any platinum-containing chemotherapy. Why is it that we have to be very careful about this? 
Response rates are lower with single-agent immunotherapy in the range of 20 to 30%. Chemotherapy response rates are higher, 40 to 50%. And especially for patients with high volume disease that's progressing very quickly, you don't want to take the chance with immunotherapy. You really want to treat with chemotherapy first and then perhaps follow up with immunotherapy later, either you know, perhaps as a maintenance approach. And now that we have level one evidence uh, demonstrating that that is associated with survival benefit. So let me hand it back off to Taryn, who will continue with our case about Sean. All right, so Sean is cisplatinum eligible and gets six cycles of gemcitabine cisplatinum. He has an 80% reduction in his lymph nodes. Given a choice between being monitored or receiving maintenance therapy with Evalumab, he decides on Evalumab maintenance. We have level one evidence showing an overall survival benefit with Evalumab maintenance, but it's important to understand the context in which this trial was conducted. So it took a group of patients, 700 to be exact, Patients who had already received standard of care platinum plus gemcitabine chemotherapy, it was basically a 50-50 mix or pretty close to it. Some had received cisplatinum gemcitabine, others had received carboplatinum gemcitabine and had achieved stable disease or better already as part of their standard of care and then had a four to 10 week treatment-free interval. And in that process, they were consented and screened and randomized to either receive a valumab maintenance treatment, basically immediately following completion of this chemotherapy or best supportive care alone. And this is in the context where, where immunotherapy is really only used as a treatment at the time of progression. So we watch our patients, and then when cancer progresses, then we use immunotherapy. Here, this approach is like immediate, what we call switch maintenance. And when, when this was done, you know, it's a multinational study conducted in the U.S. and, and throughout Europe. There's a survival advantage with a hazard ratio 0 0.069 in the overall population that was treated. And then when you focus on the pdl one positive patient population, where generally we see an enrichment and, and benefit in terms of uh, improved outcomes, response uh, the hazard ratio now improves to 0 0.56. I will point out further that we understood a little bit more about the pdl one expression biomarker as per this particular study. And the best supportive care arm alone, which basically patients are simply being observed, the survival was actually improved in the best supportive care arm, suggesting that the pdl one positive biomarker actually associates with improved prognosis as well in this particular study. All right. So what about second line treatment? So this was a maintenance approach. And I think that's kind of considered the standard of care essentially worldwide now. So after platinum chemotherapy, maintenance immunotherapy. Now, what about uh, for patients who may not opt for, let's say, a, a maintenance approach and say, listen, doc, I need a break. You know, I'll, I'll follow scans closely. And, you know, when treatment, you know, let's say when, when my cancer progresses, I'll be ready to receive immunotherapy then. So then what are my choices at that point? So then your choices expand. Here, it's a Valumab, still also available. So you could use that as maintenance or treatment at the time of progression. Nivolumab is also available. And then there's also Pembrolizumab. All three of these are now full regular approvals. Previously, you know, both Valumab and Nivolumab had accelerated labels. They've now converted to regular approvals on the basis of their subsequent randomized phase threes and a similar disease indication that, or earlier disease um, that demonstrated, uh, they established their clinical benefit. But the response rates here are basically between 16 to 20%, slightly lower for Avalumab. Nivolumab and Pembro are roughly around 21% and consistent across the, these two trials. And again, this is a very reasonable treatment option for patients who decide to wait until after progression on their uh, subsequent scans. So that's certainly an option. Okay. So what about uh, immunotherapy? So the reasonable treatment choice uh, for patients who have progressed after chemotherapy or can be done as a, what we call a uh, switch maintenance approach. Either one is very quite reasonable and patients can do it based on patient preference. Only immunotherapy to date that has shown a survival benefit over an active comparator, actually in any treatment setting, to be honest, in bladder cancer, uh, in advanced bladder cancer is actually pembrolizumab as part of the Keno 45 study, 
there have been no head-to-head trials of immune checkpoint inhibitors against each other, so it's not clear which one is necessarily better. But you know, frankly, you know, whatever you have available to you is is probably what you should be using. Now, there are other ongoing studies that are really critical to look out for checkpoint inhibitors in combination uh, with chemotherapy. I'll kind of quickly mention that because that 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 area has really settled itself out now. And then also CTLA four inhibitors. Checkmate 901 is a really important study to look out for that is looking at a higher dose of a CTLA-4 antibody called ipilimumab that may have improved outcomes, even improve that response rate in first-line setting. There are chemotherapy plus trials looking at, well, let's say, pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy, atezolizumab plus chemotherapy, Keno-361, which looked at pembrolizumab in combination with chemotherapy, negative study all around, really no added benefit. The uh, atezolizumab plus chemotherapy study, which was the Invigor-130 trial, it did meet its first of its co-primary endpoints with progression-free survival, and we're still waiting for the survival data to mature, but that magnitude of benefit is really nominal right now. And I think most of us in the field feel that while the study may be positive from a statistical standpoint, we're not quite so sure how clinically meaningful it may be. So as of today, and probably for the foreseeable future, uh, until other data from other trials read out, it's really either chemotherapy or immunotherapy in the first-line setting, really not the combination of the two. So takeaway here. Consider immunotherapy maintenance or second-line immunotherapy, depending on the response to platinum-based chemotherapy. But upfront, first first choice is either chemotherapy or immunotherapy in the first-line setting. I will quickly touch on immune-related adverse events or uh, checkpoint inhibitors. How do checkpoint inhibitors lead to adverse events? It's through you know reactivation of the immune system. Now, primary target of PD-1 antibodies are essentially the effector T cell, the CD8-positive T cell. But through co-interaction through other you know arms of the immune system. It can basically re- reinvigorate or unmask nascent autoimmunity through this kind of autoimmune inflammatory response across multiple organ systems. Skin is much the far and away most common. Pruritus, skin rash, easily two thirds of patients will get it. Less commonly, you know, uh, pneumonitis or, or you know, uh, GI inflammation, which will manifest as diarrhea, can happen between three to five percent of patients with any real clinical significance that requires steroids. Endocrinopathies can happen, all of these things, and they vary, you know, within each disease and, and also to some degree, which type of immune checkpoint inhibitors. So CTLA-4 antibodies, we see much worse. And there are a lot of other guidelines that are now published and well codified across these clinical practice guidelines in, in these uh, professional societies, including ASCO, ESMO, NCCN, and then recently updated CITSI, uh, which is a Society for Immunotherapy of Cancer. So I invite all of you uh, to visit uh, these respective websites to get updates on the, these guidelines. But the primary message here is early identification uh, of an immune-related adverse event. And majority of the time, it's early initiation of steroids to prevent escalation into higher-grade toxicity. So, Taryn, let me hand it back to you about our case. All right. Here's Sean. He achieves continued regression in his cancer and further reduction in his lymph node with avalumab maintenance. 18 months later, he experiences progression with increasing and new lymph nodes, and he has new liver metastasis. Which treatment option would be most appropriate for Sean now? Erdofitinib wasn't the right choice because the patient didn't have any actionable alterations. And so therefore, erdofitinib would not be a choice. But although if the patient did have a you know, actionable tar- alteration FGFR2 or FGFR3, then it would be a reasonable choice. So what about therapy in the third line setting and beyond? Trials should always be considered, but again, they should be you know, appropriate for the patient in their individual situation. Not, not, a trial isn't always the right choice, uh, but it can be in the right clinical scenario. And there are no randomized trials comparing infortimab, vedotin, EV versus sasetizumab, govotecan, SG, and erdofitinib. And so we're not making comparisons between each one of them, but each one has a different level of evidence to support its use. 
So in the third line setting and beyond, certainly EV has risen to preferred status, uh, driven primarily by data from the EV301 study that showed a survival benefit in third line setting against single agent chemotherapy. Ertafitinib is a preferred option for patients with FGFR2 and FGFR3 uh, alterations. It is a first-in-class and only-in-class molecule for us in bladder cancer for patients with these alterations, although there will be other agents that are currently being tested in this class as well. And then uh, alternative chemotherapies that the patient has not received in the past can be a reasonable choice. Heck, even accelerated MVAC with growth factor support. And so in very limited scenarios, might a patient be still a candidate for this type of uh, such an aggressive approach? And then lastly, sasetizumab govotecan is also listed on the basis of a single arm study uh, that led to accelerated approval in April of this year. So I want to focus now on kind of this new class of drugs called antibody drug conjugates, of which infortimab, vidotin, and then sasetizumab govotecan are both members. What are antibody drug conjugates? And you can break down the word antibody drug is, you know, the payload or the, you know, the working part of the, the drug that we want to co-administer along with the antibody. And conjugate basically means it's linked together, the term linker, uh, which can be either cleavable or non-cleavable. And this is where I think that in, in our kind of biotechnology world, this is where I think that over the last you know, five plus years, you know, our companies have really done a great job of developing better technology, both to highly customize the FAB portion of the kind of working end of the antibody, which is very antigen specific. And it'll only bind uh, certain cell surface receptors. That's the purpose of an antibody drug conjugate. And then the linker technology, which remains highly stable in the peripheral circulation, so that when this antibody drug conjugate, this whole you know, molecule here, binds on the surface of the cancer cell, it then gets internalized, usually you know, included in what's called a lysosome. And then in the case of EV, it's a protease cleavable linker. If it's SG, it's a hydrolyzable linker. And once that linker is cleaved, it releases the payload in the cancer cell or the cell of interest and it limits systemic exposure, or you know, it can't completely eliminate it, but it does limit the systemic exposure to that particular drug. And so focused activity for where the drug needs to go, limited you know, exposure for safety purposes for where the drug, you don't want it to go. In the case of EV, the target is a, is a protein called Nectin-4. Its payload is a highly potent microtubule agent called monomethyloristatin E. Yes, that's a mouthful. SG, the target is trope 2, which is ubiquitously expressed on a number of different epithelial cancers, urethelial being one of them. And then its payload is SN38, which is the active metabolite of renotecan. So basically, between these two drugs, there's really nothing that overlaps. So you really can use both drugs in the course of the patient's care, which is actually really attractive, especially because you know many times you have me two drugs. In this case, you have, yes, they are both antibody drug conjugates, but they're quite, quite different, and they should be non-cross-resistant. So what was added in the label for infortimavidotin is that there's level one evidence as a third line agent. So after chemotherapy, after immunotherapy, it showed a survival benefit versus single agent chemo like taxane in the third line setting. So it's a preferred agent there. But there was also another study called EV201 cohort two, which looked at the role of infortimavidotin after immunotherapy in cis-ineligible patients that looked at basically looking at infortimabidotin, and maybe this is a drug that we can use earlier in the course of treatment and just say, listen, instead of just third line, what about second line? What is his activity and role in second line setting? Again, with those patients who, let's say, receive immunotherapy in the first line are not good candidates for platinum-based chemotherapy. And let's see, you know, antibody drug conjugates, the safety efficacy profile is supposed to be a little bit more balanced and, and maybe uh, you know, a bit more favorable for our patients. So that was the phase two study. It had actually two cohorts. Cohort one, that was the accelerated kind of label back in December of 2019. 
I won't discuss it real quick, but again, it was after previous platinum-based chemotherapy and immunotherapy in the third-line setting. It was the precursor to the EV301 trial that led to accelerated approval. Cohort two was 89 patients who previously received immunotherapy alone and were platinum naive and cisplatin ineligible, 89 patients. And what we observed in this study that we presented at ASCO in 2021, GU ASCO 2021, and then later published earlier this year, it was a response rate of 52% and 20% of patients achieving a CR, 77 patients had at least one post-baseline scan, that 88% of the accessible patients had at least some decrease in their tumors. Telling you this drug is quite active and perhaps could be a very active option in patients who, let's let's say, receive first-line treatment, and then, you know, let's say are not good candidates for platinum-based chemotherapy and receive treatment in that setting and could be a very good option. So the FDA considered it. So when the FDA looked at this data in combination with EV301, the added part of the label was that EV could be considered after any first-line treatment. So if you receive chemo first and there's progression and you don't want to reach for immunotherapy because the patient's progressing very quickly and you're not, you know, immunotherapy is not likely to work and you want to reach for EV, you actually can. So what about EV301? So this was the confirmatory phase three that you know, supports level one evidence for the role of EV in the third line setting. After chemo, after immunotherapy, 608 patients who were randomized, primary uh, endpoint was overall survival and a key secondary endpoint of PFS. This is as, you know, as positive a study as you're going to get uh, demonstrating that enfortimabidotin is a clearly a better choice in terms of efficacy as compared to single agent chemotherapy. Where is the field headed? So, you know, for those in the, in the bladder cancer world, we're eagerly anticipating and excited about the combination of Infortimab plus immunotherapy. This was a kind of a, a dose finding and kind of signal finding study of 45 patients in the phase 1B slash 2 setting. EV103 is kind of a broad platform, you know, phase 1 program to kind of test EV in combination with other agents in a variety of bladder cancer disease settings. And so this study looked at 45 patients who were treated in the first line setting with EV plus Pembro. We really didn't expect to see this, but heck, you know, it's a 73.3% objective response rate, close to 60% CR rate. And what's quite also, you know, enticing to see is over basically a two years median duration of response, which is quite incredible. We've never seen, you know, a response data that quite looks like this. And so obviously we need randomized data. We need larger data sets to support, you know, seeing something like this. It's only 45 patients in a kind of a hand-selected phase one setting. So two trials to look out for cohort K, which is EV plus Pembro versus EV alone and cis ineligible patients. Enrollment is fully completed, actually completed, I think it's September-ish. And then uh, the phase three trial, which is currently ongoing, which is EV302, which is EV plus Pembro versus platinum doublet, platinum gemcitabine, either cis gem or carbogem. Uh, It's a multinational randomized phase three trial that is currently ongoing and accruing patients. What about SG? Several studies are ongoing, but the completed study that's been reported out was cohort one of the Trophy U01 study. I won't kind of labor the point of how, you know, the phase one development program, but I'll focus on kind of the, the registrational trials that, that led to approval in April of this year. Again, this is the Trope 2 antibody drug conjugate in cohort one of the study, which was 113 patients who had progressed on both platinum chemotherapy and immunotherapy, basically the identical disease setting in which OEV was tested. The response rate was 27%, CRs and 5%. Here's a waterfall plot, gives you a sense of the breadth of activity. You know, most people, if they're doing kind of side-by-side comparisons, you know, there certainly is activity, probably not as robust as what we see in EV, but it's certainly active and probably more active than what we'd expect with single-agent chemotherapy. The TROPIC study is the randomized phase three that is comparing SG versus single-agent chemo in the third-line setting, just like EV301 that's currently ongoing. Try not to put too much weight on trials like this, primarily because... It's a single arm study. So the progression-free survival and overall survival are just, they are what they are. 
because it's a single arm study. We need randomized trials to really interpret anything uh, as it relates to PFS and OS. Okay. What about adverse events? Very, very different than EV. So the things that really, really stand out here in terms of uh, safety is the myelosuppression and GI toxicity. That's the main thing to watch out for. Um, so neutropenia, rates of febrile neutropenia, need for growth factor support, that's a standout. Makes sense. SN38, arena TCAN, that part makes sense. And then the other is GI toxicity also makes sense. So the rates of diarrhea, those are the two main things to watch out for. But they're really not overlapping with EV. EV is hyperglycemia, some skin toxicity, even cases of Stevens-Johnson syndrome and neuropathy. So they really don't overlap with each other too much as well. This is the Tropic study. This is the study that I alluded to, which is currently ongoing. This should support the accelerated approval and hopefully demonstrate definitively a survival benefit and convert the accelerated to a regular approval for SG. Basically, identical trial designed at the EV301. Patients with platinum uh, progressed and immunotherapy progressed. Uh, uh, urethral cancer are randomized to either SG versus treatment physician's choice of single agent, docetaxel, paclitaxel, or vinflunine. And the primary endpoint is overall survival. And uh, currently, this study is ongoing, right? So what about other agents? Now, let's talk about molecularly targeted agents, uh, specifically ertafitinib. This is the one drug that we have currently available, but there are other drugs that are currently in development. What is ertafitinib? It's an orally administered pan-FGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor. There are essentially four isoforms of FGFR, so one, two, three, and four. The main driver alteration that we see in bladder cancer probably 95% of the time or more is in FGFR3, either hotspot mutations or translocations. If we see them, it's really going to be FGFR3. And of the times that we see them, it's roughly about 20% of patients uh, with advanced urethral cancer. There may be some association with some you know, tumor microenvironment phenotypes that associate with FGFR mutations. But when we really look at the data in patients, let's say, and you know, let's say Checkmate 275, we look at FGFR3 mutant patients versus wild type, the response rates with immunotherapy are actually quite you know, similar, if not identical. But there is some data to suggest that the immune microenvironment is a little bit different in patients with FGFR3 mutations, but it's not been proven that they don't necessarily respond to immune checkpoint inhibitors. There are currently phase three studies that are currently ongoing, but ertafitinib is certainly a reasonable choice. The, the basis for its approval was the BLC2001 study. Thank you for listening to the Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast. To claim your credit, please visit pce.is forward slash GIGU. And while you're there, don't forget to check out our website for more complimentary oncology CE CME activities.